Syria, millions starving, but in London, it's a talk show. Afghanistan has the Taliban got IS on the run. Libya has IS got peace on the run. And don't join the army. Don't stand on my own two feet. Don't do something important. Something that makes a difference. What do you think of the army's new TV ads? World leaders have met in London today to talk about how best to help Syrian refugees. Britain is doubling the amount it spends on dealing with the crisis, allocating an extra £1.2 billion. David Miliband heads the International Rescue Committee and says countries in the region are under immense pressure. We need a big step change in the kind of humanitarian aid that's going into these neighbouring states to staunch the flow of refugees that are coming over the border from Syria every day. Well, Jordan's King Abdullah has warned his countries at breaking point, unable to take any more Syrian refugees without significant international help. Jordanians are suffering from trying to find jobs, um, the, the pressure on the infrastructure for the, for the government. Um, it has um, hurt us uh, when it comes to the educational system, our health care. Sooner or later, I think the, the, the dam is going to burst. And I think uh, this week is going to be very important for Jordanians to see is there going to be help, not only for Syrian refugees, but for their own future as well. And Foreign Secretary Philip Hammond has been to a camp in Jordan saying Russian bombing in Syria has made the problem even worse. Russia cannot continue to sit at the table as a sponsor of the political process and at the same time be bombing the groups of people that we believe will form the backbone of the new Syria once Assad has gone. Well, let's hear now from BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. Um, it does seem that things have really come to a crisis point when you hear those kind of statements. Yeah. Um, let me put, just uh, as an illustration, one thing in, in or two things in uh, perspective. For example, we had uh, King Abdullah there talking about Jordan and how it's very difficult. Almost, almost 40% of people who live in Jordan now are refugees. Uh, nearly half 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 the people that live in Lebanon are refugees. And it's not just the, the damning of the situation, it is also the fact that uh, Jordanians and Lebanese are starting to say enough's enough. And the risk of instability in Jordan. And the risk of instability in Jordan and the ability of therefore terrorist groups or uh, to, to, to stir it up elsewhere. When they met or just before they met, I was talking last night to a couple of them. It's put something else in perspective. We're talking about the size of this thing, which people don't necessarily understand. Just imagine uh, mothers with children age about 8 to 11 in Aberdeen, same age groups in Edinburgh, Newcastle, Norwich, Southampton and Winchester. You imagine all those people, right? And you take them out into the middle of the Atlantic and you bought them in a container ship, and then sink it. Mm. That is how last night somebody described the problem, and he said it's a problem we cannot fix with the more than $9 billion US dollars that they're trying to get at the moment. A lot, a lot of talking going on, and yesterday the UN suspended the latest round of peace talks over Syria in Geneva, uh, but they are coming back. Well, they're supposed to be coming back in three weeks' time, but don't forget, you've got a war that's been going on now for nearly five years. You have the peace talks. Once you can get the peace talks going uh, every year and you don't get very far, uh, well, you can, so what you can do is hand out sort of one point something or other 
billion Are you uh, saying sterling. this is kind of a, a, co- a coincidence to oh, sort of calculate it? it. No, hang on, part, part of it's just a buy-off. You can't do much about it, but so what you do, and what David Cameron, I mean, to, properly, has always said, we go to the source of the problem. But there's a problem with, the major problem with the peace talks, there are two groups that are not there. Mm. Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Even if you got an agreement with everybody else, they would not agree. War carries on. Let's just talk briefly about what the Foreign Secretary Philip Hammond has said on his visit to a refugee camp, that Russia's not helping. And we hear in the news today that there have been allied uh, bombing raids to the north of Aleppo, and also, but that's involving France, but and also the Russians have been supporting the, the regime in Syria as well in the same area. Yeah, um, the Russian position is very, very simple. And a lot of other people think the same thing. And the Americans have become to think, think this way, but they're not saying so. And it's this. Assad, Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, if you like, the elected pre- president of Syria, is on the front foot. He is, he is, thanks to the Russians, starting to take out a lot of these rebel groups. The Americans are very quietly, and that's one of the problems of the peace talks, the Americans are very quietly saying to some of the rebels whom the Americans have supported since day four of the war, nearly five years ago, we have got to get used to the idea that initially anyway, that President Assad will have a place in these talks. He may not be there, but he'll have a place, and you've got to get used to it. The world has changed because of the type of war that you've fought. So-called Islamic State has established itself in Iraq, Syria, and has been attempting to get a foothold in Afghanistan. It's captured some territory along the eastern border with Pakistan, claiming it as a new province of the caliphate. The BBC's South Asia correspondent Justin Rowlatt has been reporting from the area. I asked him about the situation there now. Well, to be honest, it had a lot more control than it does now. In the last kind of three or four weeks, the situation's changed really dramatically. But basically what IS was doing over the last sort of year and a half, built around a core of of mostly foreign fighters, mostly fighters from Pakistan, um, it had built up support within three districts in the east of Afghanistan, so in the mountains. It's around the area, the Tora Bora region, where uh, um, famously Osama bin Laden uh, established a stronghold. It's that kind of area. And they're, they're having shifting fortunes, but they were basically gradually spreading control through villages, taking over villages, but also by persuading local people to sign up to their ideology. They were kind of spreading influence. And, and our understanding is they had a strategy of trying to establish a, a second stronghold there. And the idea was to grow slowly, try and put down deep roots, try and kind of win over local people. That kind of uh, collapsed after they came into conflict with the Taliban and started fighting the Taliban. And then some renegade commanders began attacking closer to Kabul. And as a result, what's happened in the last uh, three weeks, in fact, since uh, my report, my report wasn't, uh, we were just reporting, I'm not saying this is what changed the, the, the facts on the ground, but since then, there's been a really concerted effort by Afghan forces, local militias, and crucially now by uh, resolute support, the coalition forces in Afghanistan to target the, uh, the IS, the emergent IS uh, forces. And uh, uh, last week, the week, sorry, and the week before last, um, IS was identified as a distinct target in Afghanistan. That means like al-Qaeda, 
the uh, resolute support the coalition forces there can target uh, IS without uh, the necessity of, of supporting um, uh, Afghan forces. So they can target them directly. There have been a series of special forces operations and drone strikes now in the last week and a half on uh, IS. Yes. And that really has, as I understand it, changed the realities on the ground. So, so from what you're saying, it does sound like there has been a turnaround in the last three weeks or so. In that light, how serious do you take IS to be in Afghanistan? Well, it's quite interesting because even when I went, and this is as just as the kind of everybody was waking up to the fact that there was this emergent threat, even then it, the, the hold of IS, the ideological hold, if you like, of IS in Afghanistan was, was quite tenuous. Um, uh, you know, IS tends to be associated with Wahhabism. Most uh, Afghanis aren't from that tradition, so they're not sympathetic on those grounds. The Taliban, I mean, is a nationalist organisation and has never really sought to threaten outside the borders of Afghanistan. So the internationalist agenda of IS is very different from the Taliban, very different from traditional kind of Afghan kind of ambitions, which have almost exclusively been about control of Afghanistan itself. So it's a very different kind of organisation. There aren't many Shias in Afghanistan. Um, so there isn't a kind of minority population or indeed in other cases in, for example, Syria, uh, mm. it's Sunnis targeting a majority population of Shias. But there isn't an issue with Shias in Afghanistan. So one of the main kind of recruiting tools, if you like, of IS doesn't exist. Um, the area, this eastern part of uh, Afghanistan, has always been a disputed territory. So even the Taliban found it hard to extend control over eastern Afghanistan when they were in charge. The Americans also found it a very restive, difficult pro uh, province. So it's always been a kind of um, uh, a, a kind of difficult area to control and therefore a kind of a place where, for example, al-Qaeda was strong and now, you know, um, until recently, IS was also... Uh, uh, appeared to be uh, gaining strength. That was the BBC's Justin Rowlatt. Uh, Christopher Lee, what do you think has galvanised the Taliban against IS? Well, one is necessity, and because IS were getting into Taliban operations and defeating them. Second thing is the Pakistani uh, army and intelligence services the, who, who, who actually bankroll Taliban. They've been telling to do this because IS, they are starting to creep into, in, into Pakistan itself. The other thing to remember... Watching this lot for a decade now, when you see one side gets on the difficult side of his war, they're back within weeks, and that's what's going to happen with Taliban. Taliban is not on the run. It's not an organisation where you've got a big battlefield. Um, they just take up different positions. They he uh, talk, move. When I was chatting to him earlier, he was talking about uh, people sort of signing up to the latest jihadi, you know, uh, franchise. Do you get a sense that the people who might go and fight for IS in Afghanistan are completely different to people in, in other areas? Listen, you've got a bucket full of people that actually run Taliban and uh, IS, but it's particularly uh, Taliban. You pay them twenty-five dollars a day to come and fight for you. Mm. It is not the sort of war we mustn't still mustn't think about the war being in the way that we traditionally see wars, even in places. like like Iraq and, and, and Syria. So that's Afghanistan. Let's add another country into the mix, uh, into the IS mix, I should say. Libya, fighters from so-called Islamic State have established a base in the coastal city of Syria. Well, let's hear from the former British ambassador to Libya, Oliver Miles. Good to speak to you today, Oliver. In Libya, it just seems to go from bad to worse. Uh, well, it has gone from bad to worse, yes, or rather it's gone from good to worse because uh, I think the situation after Gaddafi was removed <coughs> was um, quite hopeful. But uh, I'm sad to say that uh, 
they've made a mess of it, they've not managed to reach agreement between themselves, and they've created a vacuum into which IS has, has begun to move. How, how serious do you think this threat of IS is in, in CERT? Well, it's, it's got to be taken seriously. It's fairly limited. It's not at all like the threat in, in um, Syria and Iraq. They haven't got a huge uh, area of, of control, and they're mainly, I think, although it's very difficult to get hard information about this, they're mainly foreigners. They haven't got very much Libyan support, and there are quite a lot of Libyans who are strongly opposed to them. Uh, they had a base in Derna in uh, eastern Libya, and they were thrown out by the locals, although Derna has a reputation of being... Um, very Islamist uh, the, the Derna Islamists weren't having anything to do with IS mm. so IS are, are a threat but not um, not a dominant You uh, say that course. things briefly got better after the demise of Colonel Gaddafi um, what do you think went wrong? I think the it was the failure of of um, the p political class in Libya if you like to get their act together and to uh, tackle the problem of what to do with the militias which had fought the revolution, uh, young men with, with guns uh, who reckoned that the state owed them something and um, there, there they were what, what was going to happen to them after the revolution was over and the, unfortunately the government took the path of simply paying them, paying them salaries and lo and behold the militias began to grow and now they're about ten times as big as they were at the end of the, fall, end of the fighting And what about Britain's involvement in all of this? When it intervened, do you think it understood what might be the consequences? Well, nobody can foresee the consequences entirely, but I, I'm a supporter of the intervention. I was very dubious about it at, at first. Did um, you ever foresee this kind of thing might have happened? I foresaw that the, 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 that the consequences were unforeseeable, if you like to put it like that. <laughs> uh, I, di I didn't expect it all to go smoothly, um, mm. so uh, I'm, I'm not entirely surprised, but I am disappointed. And I think the reason why the Libyans have failed is because although there are plenty of Libyans around who know what they want, who are, who are sensible people, uh, educated, experienced even in the West, <laughs> even experienced with, uh, with government systems and with democracy and so on, they've got no experience of working together because there were no institutions in Libya at all. Gaddafi had destroyed them all. Christopher Lee, what kind of British presence is there in Libya at the moment? Well, one of the first things that there is a British presence. Uh, it is not a major British presence, but there are people who have been put in, inserted in there, to uh, see what the situation, as far as they can see, see what the, uh, what the possibilities are in military terms. I mean, for example, what, is the, what are the balances in places like CERT or, or etc.? And there are going to be more uh, in there, including some special forces. Mm. The thing to remember, which the, which the military, when I talk to them, uh, say, is that we get this sense all the time that there are no guarantees. People don't believe there are guarantees for the future, and therefore it is actually in... Nobody's going to give up their weapons. It is not that much easier to sort of say, if there are no guarantees, we are the only guarantee of our own, own distinctions. Oliver Miles, what does Libya need from Britain at the moment? It needs support for the move to create a unified government. It needs, therefore, we should be putting all our, our resources and all our ingenuity into backing the uh, move, which is led by the UN representative um, uh, who's, who's trying to put together a government of Libya. If, if that succeeds, then uh, the situation will be transformed, not immediately, but, but uh, that would be a real hope for Libya. And if could it, you foresee any kind of military intervention by Britain? Well, I think that's what IS want. Beyond what Christopher's outlined, I suppose. Yes, I think that's what the, the, uh, the ISIS people want. Uh, they would like... So that uh, would be a mistake, then, would it? 
it would be uh, a tragic mistake, I think, but of course it might be forced on us because uh, it, it, one can't ignore the fact that IS is a threat to us. Uh, if, if there were an atrocity in Libya now, another one, I mean, there was a, a nasty one a, a couple of weeks ago when uh, about 40 police cadets were, or were the police or military, I forget, cadets were killed in a bomb attack. If there was a, um, a, a, another atrocity, or if, God forbid, they managed to, to mount an atrocity in Europe from Libya, then the pressure on, on Italy, France, Britain to intervene would be very, very strong. And that, I'm sure, is what they want. Oliver Miles, thank you for your time. Still to come, just who are the new faces in the MOD's top jobs? And what do you think of the Army's new TV ads? The American election show has hit the road. This week, the Iowa caucuses, just uh, for the second record, Trump got dumped and Hillary just made it. Well, what does this tell us about the presidential elections in November? Well, Michael Stathis is Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Southern Utah. Good to speak to you today, Professor. Um, What do we get out of this? Well, uh, most people, I think, are taking too much from this. This is, this is the first of many, many uh, primaries and caucuses, but it was the first one. And uh, given that, of course, it got all of the media attention uh, and all of the public attention. Um, but uh, what it tells us is very little about what's actually going to happen in November, hmm. with one exception. Uh, a couple of people have dropped out of the race this week, uh, but they were not doing very well uh, anyway. The, uh, the top two uh, Republicans are still, oh, heaven help us, uh, <laughs> Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. Uh, Ted Cruz won the uh, the caucus, but under a shadow, there were some uh, what we would call shenanigans going on uh, in uh, in Iowa. And on the Democratic side, uh, uh, Secretary uh, Clinton uh, was able to um, uh, defeat uh, uh, Bernie Sanders just barely. It was nip and tuck all the way through in a pl- in a state where um, oh four months ago she had uh, a forty percent lead. Mm. So a few surprises. But uh, now we're gearing up for the second uh, primary. Uh, it will be a primary, not a caucus, and that will be in New Hampshire uh, this coming Tuesday. Indeed, and, and all looking forward to November, Christopher. And um, what's at stake <laughs> <laughs> already? Yes, can hardly. Uh, Christopher, um, what's at stake here for the UK and for defence in the UK? I think if you happen to be in the UK or, or Europe, it's very simple. Um, if um, if uh, Mrs. Clinton. Uh, gets the nomination and became president in November, uh, she is pro-Europe. She understands from her time as Secretary of State and also, for firstly, how Europeans think, how, they, how the pol- politicians think, and therefore she is very, very much pro. On the Republican side, the Republicans look at the Europeans and say, why are they not doing more? Simple as that. Of course, uh, the biggest story of the week is the outline of the 27 Pentagon budget by the Secretary of Defence, Ash Carter. Close on $600 billion, a 50% increase in counter-IS operations, 45,000 more guide weapons and a 400% increase in America's military budget in Europe. And that's all for starters. Uh, Michael, um, this is not just election year spending, is it? Tell us what America thinks about the global military situation. 
Well, uh, this this has been part of the presidential debate already, but uh, an, uh, an odd thing this week, none of the candidates have talked about this budget at all. Why is that? Uh, that I have seen. Uh, well, I think they're focused on uh, other things in particular, but this budget is very interesting. You noted uh, almost $600 billion mm. uh, for uh, 2017, and of course this will... Uh, uh, go into effect uh, in October, uh, even though it's for uh, 2017. And, uh, of course, there are some reasons here. Um, the Secretary of Defense, Ash Cole, um, noted uh, uh, his words, uh, new assertiveness on the part of Russia and, of course, ISIS Daesh um, mm. have uh, demanded uh, an increase, uh, a 50% increase uh, in spending, um, uh, concerning ISIS, uh, Daesh, uh, uh, up to $7.5 billion. But, uh, of course, the, uh, dr- the dramatic uh, uh, line here, and of course you've already mentioned it and Chris uh, made a note, uh, a fourfold increase in spending uh, 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 concentrating on, uh, on Europe, $34 billion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, this has been... Um, uh, caused, of course, by the bad behavior of uh, Vladimir Putin. But um, uh, this is dramatic, and um, I think that uh, 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 most of the candidates will support this, if not even greater attention uh, for, for Europe. Christopher Lee, um, is it a wish list, do you think, or, or is it really going to become reality, this budget? Uh, traditionally, and by the way, I think the full budget won't be put uh, um, forward until next week. Traditionally, what happens, this thing goes... Goes, uh, goes to the uh, Congress. And the various committees, like the um, Armed Services Committee, the Foreign Relations Committee, etc., they will start squabbling about this. They will say, you're not having it just that way. And that's always the case. And so sometimes uh, the actual defence budget uh, doesn't um, come into act next year in the form that's going to be announced, let's say, next week. There's another side of it, of course, this being an election year, then being election year, then it's a tougher one to actually ride. And also, the other thing which I think is brilliant is the pork barrelling starts now, and that's mm-hmm. when the different senators start saying, OK, if you're going to do that, I want that factory in my, in my constituency or in my state to, uh, to have, some, have, some of the, have some of the work on it. Professor Michael Sather, I think you've got your work cut out for you, haven't you? We'll let you go. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for staying with us. Uh, there's been Thank a shake you so up. much. Thank you. There's been a shake-up at the top of the MOD. Let's uh, take a look at some of the names who will take up their new posts this spring. The new Chief of Defence Staff will be Air Chief Marshal Sir Stuart Peach. Christopher? Yeah, Air Chief Marshal Stuart Peach. Uh, time for a time for an airman in the job. Mm. We've had a couple of soldiers doing it beforehand. Uh, and it was an admiral way back, but, you know, they're digging out another admiral shortly. Um, <laughs> it, it, he, he, was, he was, Stuart Peach was the Vice Chief of the Defence Staff. Now, what's interesting about that is that the Army didn't actually uh, necessarily want him to get the job, and the military didn't. But the Prime Minister, apparently who has had dealings with people at this level, said, no, that's the guy that I want coming to me and telling me what's what. Lieutenant General Gordon Messenger will become a full general and is appointed Vice Chief of Defence Staff. Great guy. He's, he's, he's just Young a lad. Young guy. He's, oh, oh, he lad? He's, 50, <laughs> he's 53. Um, and Vice Chief of the Defence Staff, he's the guy who's, who's basically deputy, holds the whole thing together. I wouldn't mind putting 20 quid maybe 25, on the fact that he will be the next Chief of Defence Staff. And the other thing, he will be the first time a Royal Marine has held this sort of position since the new 77? First, 77. The new First Sea Lord will be Vice Admiral uh, to be Admiral Sir Philip Jones. Yeah, Philip Jones is a... Uh, 
he's he's really good news. Uh, he was running what used to be called Sink Fleet, Commander in Chief Fleet, and he was the Deputy First Sea Lord. So he's he's got all in his pocket to play for. He is another potential. Another potential to be in the running to be uh, chief of the and finally, uh, Air Marshal Sir Stephen Hillier will become chief of the air staff. I think that's yeah. Uh, he is he's interesting. He was the deputy chief of the defence staff, and he's going to that Kaz's job, which has got a lot of problems, a lot of things to be uh, thinking about. For example, where do you get all the aeroplanes and the ground crews, etc., to carry on this bombing? Where do you get mixed up with the carrier project with the navy? Mm. It's a big job to go to. Have you seen the new army recruitment adverts on TV? Don't join the army. Don't. Don't what? Don't stand on my own two feet. Don't do something important. Something that makes a difference. Don't realise I can do more than I thought. More than you thought. Don't become a, a better me. One of the army's latest recruitment ads where a teenager discusses whether to join the army with his dad. Well, they're quite a change from past campaigns. They're the first which don't feature any scenes of combat or weaponry. They're aimed at 16 to 24-year-olds, what advertising people like to call Generation Z. So, do they appeal to young people and will they work? That's the question. Well, let's talk to 16-year-old George Taylor from Kent. Hello, George. Hello. I understand you're considering joining up. Why? I've my family's got a um, real connection with the army. My granddad was Coldstring Guards, and I've been brought up to have a respect for military personnel. So, so it's not I'm the thinking. ads that have swayed you, then, George. Well, I must admit, it's given me uh, food for thought. Mm-hmm. What do you think of them? I think they're pretty good. It definitely makes a change from scenes of combat, as yeah, you know, as, as cool as it is, driving on a beach in a couple of quad bikes. Um, it gives it another perspective, which is very good, because when, it, when you actually get there, it's obviously more than one view. Do you think many people are really going to want to join the army with this kind of message of kind of wanting to better yourself as opposed to going out there and doing something? Well, it, it's very compelling because you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, you know, at the minute, what can I do? I've got a couple of GCSEs and I've not really got any qualifications, but that makes it look as if, well... And what about this line of... Make it look, but the just... Sorry, what about the line about don't join the army? Could it be a bit confusing to people? Well, I must admit, I've had it a couple of times where my parents have said, um, oh, no, we don't want you to join the army. But So it, it brings it home that it's not just yourself that's having those, those kind of um, issues. So what do you say to them when they say that to you? Well, I, 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 to be honest, I can understand their logic, and I believe that helps, but... But you're rebellious, yeah? <laughs> you're going to run away to the army anyway. <laughs> oh, you could put it that way. Uh, Major General Patrick Cordingley is with us. He's a former commander. He is the former commander of Seventh Armoured Brigade. Um, good to speak to you to today, General. What, what do you make of these adverts? Well, I thought they were a little bit too subtle. I thought they were the too sophisticated. Was, are they? Well, yes. It was just the message to me. Um, and I did watch it several times, and the second one with the father and his son in the garage. I think well, the acting is superb. I can't fault that. And. It is actually quite thought-provoking when you watch it a couple of times. So maybe the subtlety is that you've got to see it a few times before you really do get the message. But, you know, if I was 16 or 17, and like the lovely person you've just spoken to, I, my parents were in the army and so on and so forth, so I was always thinking of joining up, I would, I think, quite like to have seen a bit of a 
few bangs and a few exciting airplanes flying around and tanks driving around. I think I would have liked to have seen that. But on the other hand, I'm beginning to think, mm, this is quite subtle. Mm, do you think it's reflecting, though, what people might expect to do when they join the army? I think people join the, the armed forces for, or the army, for adventure. And at the moment, they may be wondering what sort of adventure they're going to have. Well, that was the same in the Cold War, but lots of people did join the army. And there were different sorts of adventure, maybe not going out on operations in the way they have done in the recent past. And I think that's probably why people join, not to better themselves, because they'll have a pretty strong opinion of themselves anyway if they're going to join the army, I think. Mm. I think George Taylor is still on the line. Um, George, have you got anything you want to ask the general about a career in the army? Uh, not really, but if you don't mind, I've got a couple of views on the um, actual adverts. Go on. Uh, building on what the um, on what the officer said was, um, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's too subtle, but... It's a real situation that I've often found myself in. Um, I've, I've been talking with my friends and they're thinking, oh, you know, joining the army, oh, you know, it's one of those things. But to be completely honest, a lot of the teenagers need discipline um, and they, they look to the army as a, you know, as a respected force. Mm. And they believe that they can use that as a tool to actually better themselves and be an asset to, you know, well, listen, it's good to talk to you and good luck with your future. George Taylor, thank you. And Major General Patrick Cordingley, thank you for your time. Uh, Christopher Lee, I mean, you were in the armed forces, but it didn't bring much discipline to you, did it? Still hasn't. No. I was in the Navy, though. Encouraging. I only joined the Navy because I wanted to go to sea in ships. <laughs> Honestly, and I love the uniform and all the family have been in it. I tell you something, George Taylor is exactly the guy they're looking for. Mm, you know, he'll do well, won't he? Kids today, I mean, I look at the, around my, my, my place, they're much smarter than we were. They go. They, they don't need guns and there to realise what they're you. doing. You must be quiet, Mr Lee. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. We'll be yeah, back at yeah, the same yeah, time yeah, next yeah. week. Uh, speak to you again. All the best. Bye-bye. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.